you're listening to the Tech Talk Show. Hi there, my name is Sue Nelson and for the next hour we're going to be talking about all things tech and I'm joined by my fellow presenter who today is Lucy Ellis. Hello. Hello. And uh, Lucy's director at uh, Breakthrough Funding and they specialise in tech and digital funding. We've got some great guests today. We have, haven't we? I know you've already met two of them, haven't you? I have, yes. <laughs> very excited. So, so you are very excited, yeah. Um, so our guest today, I'm really, really honoured to have um, Dr Sue Black with us and I'm going to tell you all about Sue um, in a minute. Um it's just intimidating, I think, really, is all I can say. Um, and we're also joined by Philip Shepherd. Now, Philip is a composer, producer, virtuoso cellist, an inventor, a public speaker, a philanthropist, a professor at the Royal Gallery of Music and a creative inventor. So we've got quite a lot to talk about with you, Philip, later on, haven't we? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, in the presence of greatness. Um, and also, I'm joined by Joe Davis. Uh, is it Vim Group or VIM Group? It's actually VIM, V-I-M group. we don't mind Vim. Vim. Vim is good. So Vim group. And um, Jo has got 25 years experience of branding and I'm hoping today she's going to help us all with a bit of high level advice, uh, well, for Sue and for Philip actually, for some of the things they've done as examples, um, because brand is probably more important than ever because every marketplace is so crowded now, isn't it Jo? Absolutely. Brand is uh, everything that we consume. We are loyal to it. We, yeah, buy it all the time. So I'll do my best with it's the your, It's your differentiator, isn't it? It's how Absolutely. people decide your USP. between one or the other. Yeah. Great. So we're going to talk to um, Philip and Joe in quite some depth uh, later on. But Dr. Sue Black. Now, named one of the top 50 women in tech in Europe... That's impressive. She's making faces, uh, just to let you know. Uh, you've got an OBE, goes without saying. And you're award-winning and you're a computer scientist and you're a radical thinker and you're an activist. And I would say a passionate social entrepreneur. Not just a social entrepreneur, but a passionate one. You're nodding. This is the yeah, radio. I'd agree so. with that. Am I allowed to speak now? Yeah, yeah I'd yeah. agree with that. <laughs> um, you're also honorary professor in the Department of Computer Science at the University College London. Um you weren't really destined for an academic career, were you, from oh, your how, upbringing, really? How rude. <laughs> you don't think you were, and I don't think in your head you thought that would happen. And no. now all of a sudden you are where you are. Yeah, it's not really all of a sudden. Well, no, no, but yeah. what I mean is, you know, and it's very interesting when people, you know, are grown up or, they're, or, 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 you know, they've been at school and they think they might be good at some things and might be good at others. Actually, your life can take all sorts of twists and turns. You end up never thinking that that's oh, where you're yeah. going to end up. Absolutely. Mm. Well, yeah, so I left school at 16 with five O-levels and didn't go back into education until I was 26, so 10 years later, by which time... I had three small children, um, had ended up in a, a women's refuge for six months and was then living on a council estate in Brixton and so, wondering so, what I was going to do with the rest of yeah, my life. So, so um, describe what it's like in a women's refuge. So you're in a women's refuge, uh, you know, you, you've left a rather violent partner, I believe, um, and you've got these very young children, you've got no money, you haven't got a house, you've probably got practically just the clothes that you've got. Um, and, and how bleak is that? How do you pull yourself out of that? type of situation that it's probably through no fault of your own you found yourself in well actually it, it wasn't that bleak <laughs> um because uh, we'd escaped so 
actually the bleak bit was the bit before, bit before. getting okay. there. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, I, I suppose the timing was quite bad because it was the week before Christmas. So we'd left and like all the Christmas presents that I'd bought and everything for for every for my kids and everyone else, I'd, I'd have to leave had to leave behind. Um, and I don't know really. I mean, it was. It wasn't like the best time in my life, but at the same time, it definitely wasn't the worst either. And, and do you think that's because deciding to leave is actually the most difficult thing? And then once you've made that decision, actually, in a way, that, that takes the weight off your shoulders. I think, yeah, I, I can remember. So we kind of like ran away one morning, well, 18th of December. Um, and it took till the afternoon to actually kind of go, get to the refuge, go through the process of getting kind of like booked in and everything and, and actually being in a room. So we didn't get into an actual room in a refuge till probably about 6 p.m. that night. Um, so like 12 hours later, probably. And it was, uh, you know, I mean, kind of like we had somewhere safe to sleep. We had our own room with, a, you know, that I could lock the door. Um, and then the next morning, you know, I'd been given some emergency um, funding from the local um, social security office, I think, or from the refuge, I can't remember. And um, so I had to go out and get some food for like for the kids. And like my daughter was, three and I had twin boys that were one and so oh. you know I kind of like got the twins in the double buggy got my daughter like holding on to the side and just kind of like walked out in a new area that I didn't know looking for a, a supermarket that was open mm. and kind of like walked along found one uh, got some food it was kind of like on the way back and I just suddenly thought oh god I'm gonna be sick because we're like I think just you know and then I just basically relief very some... nice but kind of like threw up in the gutter and then I just thought so that bit's over now. That's that's all gone. And, I've got and here's chance. my new life. Here's my new life. And I kind of felt really, it was like a nice, you know, it was cold, but it was like a sunny morning. And I just remember thinking, okay, you know, like it's, it's going to be okay. Mm. We've got somewhere. We got out of that situation. And and in terms of, of then looking forward, um, uh, did it sort of occur to you? You've got these two young, these three young children. Um, obviously, they're going to be growing up. And then at some point, they're going to nursery or school or whatever. And, and then did you think, right, what am I going to do? You know, did, did that dawn on you early on or? or I think I just, I needed, so we were in the refuge for six months, <coughs> then we got a flat, then I got my daughter into, so by then she was um, four, so she was going into reception at local school, got the boys into a local play group, so I got all of them sorted, we had the flat, I got them sorted and I thought, okay, so what am I going to do? Yeah. Um, and my first thought was to go go back to work right try and get a job but I hadn't worked since um my daughter was born so like three years and I had five O-levels and I'd worked uh, kind of like in um in accounting in a record company mainly so I just thought if I go back to that job I'm not going to earn enough money to to pay for childcare for the children so mm. there's no point doing that at this point so what else can I do and I kind of like thought well maybe I should have a go at going back into education uh, maths was my favourite subject at school, so I thought I'll try and do worst. a maths course. I really, yeah. <laughs> I've got my own I level, but um, yeah. I, only because part of it was multi-guess. <laughs> really? Yeah, multiple choice. Otherwise, <laughs> I would have never got it. <laughs> but, um, um, but yeah, that was my favourite subject. So I just thought, I'll see if I can do like maths A level and then I'll see if I can get to uni. So I went along to the local college, so the college, chat to them. They were running at the time a polymaths course, which was equivalent to two maths A levels in one year just six hours in the classroom a week and 20 hours home study. So that suited me Perfect. perfectly. Yeah, yeah. So I went along to that class, did really well, came like joint top of the class at the end of the year. Uh, then went to South Bank Uni, did a degree in computing. 
then... But how unusual was doing a degree in computing if you were female, though? We it was about we 10%. Feel it's, we always feel it's quite boy and and, and it shouldn't be, should it? No, no, not at all. I mean, if you, you know, like, kind of going back, I think in the 60s, it was about 50-50 women. And I think the, kind of like the term computer came from mainly women who were doing computing before we had mm. computers as we know them now. But the problem with that is we've got less women doing it now than we had before. And I don't really understand. You know, when you consider... On this programme, we have people doing robotics and we have people doing AI and VR and drones and all sorts of really interesting things. It's an incredible area to be in. Yeah. And we need that female input. And it's not necessarily about coding, is it? No, no, no. I mean, coding's part of it, but it's mm. not just coding. And, yeah, I mean, I don't know why these kind of stereotypes have just grown out of mm. somewhere. I think the portrayal of technology in the media doesn't help. Uh, and hasn't helped kind of from the probably the 70s onwards you know because like on twitter now and again someone will post you know like some article from 1975 you know about about technology and it'll be you know like a guy and his son sitting at a computer and there'll sort of be some or i always think of things like jurassic park and stuff like that where you've always got some rogue you know computer programmer who's got a hoodie and can't get a girlfriend and and, and accidentally you know ruins the world or something by by being a bit geeky and going going over the top yeah that's That's quite a persistent um, visual image as well yeah yeah, absolutely and you know that kind of carries on through everything i think and of course people are affected by that you know we need role models we need to see it to be it Uh, so Mm. you know you need to see or, or most people will need to see someone like them doing that sort of thing for them to feel Relax. that they really can do yeah, it. Yeah. So, so, so you you managed to get a degree, which was yeah. amazing, uh, in computer science. Yeah. Tell me what what, what what mark did you get? Go on. Oh, I've got a two one. Two, two one. Two yeah. one. Well done. Yeah. Thank yeah. You. Well All done. the best people get two. I, I agree with that. <laughs> if, if they're first, did everyone here get two? <laughs> if they're first, they're unemployable. I think. So yeah. Exactly. No social. Too brainy. <laughs> too brainy. Not employing them. Um, so, so, you, so you've got your your um, your degree, and, yeah. and but you still get your three children. Obviously, yeah. you haven't wandered off anywhere. So, no. so what did you decide to do for, for the next step? So then, my um, supervisor, well, second supervisor for my dissertation during my degree. Um, said to me in one of our meetings, what do you think about doing a PhD? So I said, oh, I'd love to do a PhD. What I didn't tell him was I didn't know what a PhD was. (laughs) (laughs) So I had to go out the room and look it up afterwards. And then I thought, oh, yeah, actually, I would quite like to do that because it's research and I'd really enjoyed the research that I'd been doing. Um, And is that a full-time thing, mostly? So it's supposedly full-time, but then you, to make money, which I needed to do because I had three kids, um, you do part-time teaching. So I can't remember how many hours a week I did, but like six or eight hours a week part-time teaching, which probably took up two days, maybe three, two and a half days. So it's basically half the week. Mm. Um, And so, yeah, so I was full-time to start with, with part-time teaching, and then... I think after about two and a half or three years, I applied for a full-time lectureship, which I got. So then I became a full-time academic, part-time PhD student. Took me seven years to finish my PhD, but I got yeah, I got there eventually. And a PhD is something where um, you really examine something in detail. I yeah, mean, in huge detail, really, really small. That nobody's done before. Yeah. So, so you really home in. Yeah. Uh, on something. Yeah. What did you do? Is it something I'm <laughs> going to understand? No, probably not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, my thesis is called uh, "Computation of Ripple Effects for Software." Of course, it so. Is. <laughs> Yeah, I know that one. You've read it, right? You're you're the two people in the world that have actually read it. No. <laughs> I should have brought you a copy. Yeah, lovely. Yeah. Um, so, so at that time, basically what I really wanted to do was to help people that were um, adapting big banking systems. So you think of like 
10, 20 million lines of code that was written, you know, like the, the kind of kernel was probably written, I don't know, like 15 years ago or something. Mm. And um, people were having to, you know, like change functionality in various different ways to adapt these massive systems. And what I really wanted to do was to be able to provide them with some sort of information that would help them to understand what effects the change that they were going to make would have like across the whole system. So that's kind of the ripple effect uh, part of it. Because presumably so, then you can change something and, and then and then you fix whatever it is you want to do or you make it more yeah, efficient, but it has an unintended consequence effects, somewhere yeah, else. Exactly. So it's to try and um, sort of like mitigate side mm. effects, I guess, and or at least show where the change would go to so that you would know at least which parts of the system. Track it. Yeah. yeah, so that's kind of the ripple effect thing. So someone else had already come up with a, an algorithm to calculate ripple effects. Uh, and what I did was uh, kind of like change its mathematical basis to a different type of maths so that it was easier to compute because the algorithm that they'd come up with um, would you know would just take like a hundred years to compute something so and of course this is like 2000 we're like late 90s so yeah. we didn't have the computing power then that we've got now so I kind of changed it to a different type of math simplified it a bit and then uh, wrote uh, like a prototype software tool to to be able to count because only um, um, then I was working at Bartley's Bank on the year 2000 program. Oh my goodness, we should have been chatting then. Oh, no, no, that would have been know. amazing. I know. So I was on the year 2000 program. Oh, wow. And now when people look at that, they uh, they, they they think that's hilarious. Yeah. But actually, Why there do they was think it's serious. Hilarious? Well, because 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 a lot of people thought that it was just like. Um, it's something that didn't really exist and right. didn't need fixing, whereas it, was, it really did. Yeah. And the fact that it got fixed and was all fine, everybody yeah. thought, oh, that didn't need fixing. But oh, it, at goodness. the time, it was a £200 million programme yeah. inside Bartley's. Yeah. And, and there were loads, of, and I worked on it for two years. And um, I did all the comms for it, okay. trying to explain to the rest of the bank, which is yeah. 35,000 people, wow. <laughs> the things that we needed to change and the yeah. things that we needed to do, which is a really hard task, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, because a lot of it is still about behaviour. You know, you can write amazing programs that you're doing, but we're still relying on people to do the right thing, yeah, yeah, and, and not to bypass the system, mm. you know, and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, so it was uh, it was quite interesting. I learned well, a lot about risk. Yeah, actually. I bet. Yeah, that was that was quite interesting. So you've got that, and then. Yeah. Bletchley Park came along. Yeah. Are you familiar with Bletchley Park, Lucy? No, I've never actually been, but I really want to go. They do loads of things over, like for children and things, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Bringing them Mm. into tech and stuff. They do now, but before, when Sue arrived, it wasn't quite like that, was it? Well, they were doing something, just not as much as they're they're doing now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so, so you turned up with something that inspired you. Yeah. Uh, um, I just went there for a meeting in 2003. Yeah. And at that time, I didn't know anything about Bletchley Park. I probably, I thought that probably like 50 old blokes worked there. I just had no clue, <laughs> really. Um, and then I ended up finding out that day that uh, more than 10,000 people worked there. About 8,000 were women. And it just blew my mind that 8,000 women worked here. And I don't, I worked here and I didn't know about it. I just thought that's ridiculous. Um, so that time I went away. Um, and was that in the 40s? That was during the war, you mean? That, that many people worked there? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not that well, I went there. No, no. Rude. Not that you went there during the war. <laughs> not that old. No, I didn't quite know that. that old. Come no, on. No, but what I meant was that, that amount of people. That was there during, during the Second World, Second World War. War. Yeah. So yeah. I think it was uh, at Bletchley Park on all the outstations, like the listening stations. It was over 10,000 people and over 8,000 women. Um, like through the six years of the war, basically. Um, so I found out about the women that worked there and thought, well, I've got to raise the profile of all these women because if I don't know about it, probably no one really knows what happened. So we raised some funding for an oral history project, which we called the Women of Station X because Station X is another name for Bletchley Park. 
And um, at the launch of that, I found out that Bletchley Park were having financial difficulties, that the director was worried that they were going to close. He said that they were teetering on a financial knife edge. So and, and yet this is a historical yeah, site, absolutely. isn't it, really? Yeah. I mean, if that was St Paul's Cathedral or something beautiful, like that, it's yeah. a beautiful building. It wouldn't be allowed to happen. Yeah, so... I just thought, well, I've got to do something about that. And then just after that, I, I did a, a full tour of Bletchley Park, which I've not done before, with a veteran. Uh, and he said, you know, the work that was done here shortened the war by two years. 11 million people a year were dying. So I thought, so the work that was done here saved 22 million lives, but no one's really doing anything mm. about making sure that they're financially stable. And, That's and ridiculous. And half, half of the people that were working on that were, were women. So yeah, that, more so than it's half. A, it's a... It was a genuinely, you know, male and female working together yeah, project. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in, you know, during the war. Yeah, yeah. But but nobody's nobody was talking about it. Didn't seem to. No, anyway. no, no. That they weren't. And I just thought, well, that's wrong. And by that time, kind of like going back to my career, I was then head of department. So I kind of like applied for a promotion every time I could, and then got a job at University of Westminster as head of department. So then I was head of a computer science department. So I emailed all the heads of professors of computing um, in the country said we've got to save Bletchley Park there was a petition on the 10 Downing Street website asked everyone to sign it and then looked at it a few hours later after I sent that email and saw like these famous professors and I was like oh my mm. goodness like I got them to sign this <laughs> you know like they think it's important good too. career move though so <laughs> all suddenly yes, started so everyone knows to know who now. you are yeah, <laughs> yeah good one yeah well no I just didn't realize that at all at the yeah, time yeah and um and then my colleague at work John who'd come up to Bletchley Park with me I said to him, what else can we do? You know, we need to kind of like raise the profile more. So he said, why don't we write a letter to the Times? So he drafted a letter. I sent it around all the heads and profs um, and then sent that into the Times. And uh, also I contacted all the journalists that I knew, which that time was like three or four, wasn't very many. But yeah. luckily Rory Keflin-Jones from the BBC was one of them. And uh, in a nutshell, he came back and then got me on BBC News. And he's their, uh, he's their tech Technology editor, correspondent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so he interviewed me at Bletchley Park. I was on a Today programme. It was in July of 2008. And BBC News, so it kind of like went worldwide on BBC News. So that was really great. Um, and I got lots of emails that day. But then after that, I was like, well, what do I do next? That's all the things I know that I can do, I've done. Um, apart from just talking to people in person at events and stuff. And so about six months after that, so like towards the end of 2008, I discovered Twitter. Well, I'd already signed up for it and thought it was rubbish. Um, but then I discovered <laughs> Twitter properly in that what you could potentially use it for um, and started tweeting about Bletchley Park. And then through that got lots of people involved, including Stephen Fry. And just gradually over two or three years built up this massive community of people that cared about Bletchley Park. And and, and the, the history of it's incredible. And I've watched that film. I forgot what it was called. The Imitation now. Game. Yeah, with old Benedict. Half of which is not true. So Benedict Cumberbatch. One woman. Yeah. Eight thousand. Uh, yeah, so so um, I, I quite I quite like it's a Benedict. Good film. Yeah, yeah, it was it's a good a, film. It's a good film. But but you but your suggestion is it's 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 a good film, but it's pretty fictional, really. Yeah, well, it's like the 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 machine, the bomb machine that um, which they call Christopher. He calls Christopher in the film. Um, he didn't build it. That was Doc Keane and his team uh, in London that built that. So the whole thing, so, he's, he's going there every night and working on it. Till, yeah, he didn't you know, do any of that. He, didn't, no. oh, okay. he did the theory along with a guy called um, Gordon Welshman, who was also one of the co-breakers there. So he did the theoretical stuff, but I guess going in and just scribbling some stuff on no, paper, it's not very, not very dramatic, is no. it? 
<laughs> no, no. Yeah, I'll so... love it. It's a piece of paper. Build that for me. <laughs> yeah. no, that's not going to work. <laughs> no. So you can see why they had to do that. But at the same time, so I kind of like, I'm obviously conflicted about it because yeah. it's not the true story. But at the same time, it's amazing because it's got it out yeah, to yeah, an yeah. international audience. So, so of course that's so great. So Kira Knightley, you know, comes along yeah. with some brainy woman who, who can do crosswords. crosswords yeah. yeah. Like, well, what, what relationship does that have to the to, to what you sort of discovered so from the the women that i've talked yeah. to that work there so yeah i mean they got contacted in all sorts of different ways so there was the kind of like oxford cambridge ucl women that were at university at the time studying languages you know like japanese or german um linguists and stuff and then there were also um women like um jean valentine who I think she said her head teacher, she thinks her head teacher recommended her. And I think mm. she was 18 when she went there. And uh, she said it's like the first time she'd been away from home and she lived in Scotland and she had to ask her dad if he would sign the papers because she yeah. wasn't 21. Yeah. Um, then I think she was just told to report at Bletchley Station. So she had to get the train from Scotland down to Bletchley. It was quite a long way when you've not really been away mm. from it's home. It's a long way now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let alone then, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, and she says that she was really good at sort of cryptic crosswords and stuff. So she reckons that's how she kind of got picked out. And how do they find these women, though? Because there yeah. wouldn't have been huge numbers. That's what I mean. then, yeah. There wouldn't have been huge numbers at university, would there? No. So I think there's a few from university. Right. Uh, but in general, I guess maybe schools, head teachers, just kind of like a almost like a whispering network, I guess, of people who knew people who knew people, um, asking uh, for smart women. Because, of course, most of the, the men... Uh, but why women? To, because, because most the men, of the guys have to go and kill yeah, themselves yeah. in war. Or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Were being yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so in a way, during the war, they, ha they had to rely on women because yeah. they didn't really have any choice. Yeah. Really. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, so how much have you raised in total in terms? Well, of so control? I didn't specifically try to raise an amount of money. Right. I was trying to raise profile, really, and and build a community a community of people who cared about Bletchley Park. So, but gradually, what happened through the time that we were campaigning was that they got, I think, after about six months or a year. They got some money from English Heritage, something like 300000 So that was the first sort of substantial mm. amount of money. Uh, and then kind of a few more, and then they got lottery funding. And so, you know, once they got national lottery funding, it was kind of... I was told by the director that you I don't need now. to say yeah, saving yeah, Bletchley yeah. Park anymore, it's saved. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> and I do, I do think... I know you're quite modest, but I do think it's fair to say that without you, it probably wouldn't have happened. You can't say, can you? Who knows? <laughs> Who knows what would have happened? But I think it was at a critical... You know, sometimes it's just yeah. a tipping point, isn't it, where it would have fallen into ruin. And yeah. then maybe it would have got saved later, but it would have been quite difficult. Yeah, I mean, the, the director was saying at that talk uh, that they were teaching on a financial knife edge. And he was saying it was at the time of the swine flu epidemic or, yeah. or like predicted swine flu epidemic. So he said he was really worried that if that happened, the visitor numbers would drop. Um, and uh, and that was their main revenue source. Yeah. And then they'd have to close. And he said if they closed, they'd never be able to open it up again. Yeah. Well, you're a bit of a hero, I think. Um, oh, uh, thank so. you. Can I just turn to um, another sort of area of your work, which is something I'm, I'm particularly interested in? Um, and obviously, you're, 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 you know, working at the at the university. You're a head of department, um, but you've you you started running some courses, didn't you? And, and I think you were quite shocked about mums and actually their interest, not not just their lack of digital skills. Well, so um, about six years ago possibly as part of a midlife crisis because I was turning 50, <laughs> I mean 20. Uh, um, I, I thought I've really got to do something about the way that technology is perceived, like in general, and help people to, in general, to understand the potential of, of quite basic digital skills for them 
as individuals, but also for organisations and also, in fact, for like nations as a whole. Yeah. Um, and, and by basic be, digital skills, mm. what do you mean? Just being able to navigate, you know, your emails and, and all that sort of stuff. Just yeah. maybe a simple spreadsheet, maybe, you know, That's doing something on it. Word, PowerPoint. Yeah. But but actually just, just basic stuff like that that would get you yeah. through a job, a normal job. So, so that plus... Um, kind of trying to inspire people that they could do really exciting things because I know some people find that kind of stuff that you just mentioned exciting but I don't really I don't, I don't. <laughs> no. it drives me nuts <laughs> no but some people do yeah, yeah. Um, so but, but, but you can't survive without it at work it's no diff- well so, it's difficult so that stuff's it? important yeah. but at the same yeah, time um, I really wanted to get people excited about technology as well so I, I put a program together which is all that kind of stuff but it's also app design web design how to use social media, different platforms, how to stay safe online, and then a bit of coding in Python. Um, not to give everyone massive in-depth skills, but to just show them, look, you can do this, you can do this. And it, right. th- it's uh, like five modules and five two-hour modules. So mm. it's not a long, involved course. Um, and kind of the idea is to show the uh, breadth of, you know, these... Um, different types of uh, technology or using technology in different ways Mm. and the fact that everyone can do it so I actually started out running uh, these classes with kids with seven-year-old kids who could do it so I knew that if seven-year-olds could do it we could definitely teach it to any adults and so when we had the um, like the I was running these workshops with seven-year-olds we got the parents in at the end of the day and Uh, encourage them to to have a go at what their kids had done as well and and notice that in general the dads would just kind of step in and have a go and the mums were a lot more hesitant and that just kind of like started me thinking maybe I should be targeting mums because if I target mums they'll be more positive about technology the home will be more positive about technology the kids whatever they learn at school will be supported at home so you know we don't just get to the mums we get to the mums and uh, you know they'll have at least one child so we get to more, you know, we kind of double yeah, the impact exactly, yeah. at least. And so... And so do you yeah. think men, I know we're generalising terribly, yeah. but do you think men are a bit more likely to, oh, I'll give it a go? Uh, whereas yeah. women are sort of would, would stand back and go, I'm not quite sure, so I'll hang back. Well, is, yeah, because kind of going back, well, going back to what we were saying mm. earlier, you know, that's kind of how it's portrayed in the media in lots of different ways, through films, through kind of everything we see in advertising. And, it, you know, it's changing a bit now, but for many years, that's what we've seen. So, of course... You know, unless you've had a background where, you know, maybe your parents encouraged you as a woman to do tech or, you know, you had someone close to you who's, who's good at technology and mm. they've done stuff with you. In general, the message you get from society is that you can't do that. So, of course, everyone's not going to just jump in and have a go mm. because they're not expected to know how to do it. So you've managed to get all these um, amazing mums. I've seen some of the photographs uh, yeah. uh, and there's some great... Um, Everybody seems really happy and, yeah. and pr- <laughs> proud of what. Don't be so pr- surprised proud of what they've done. No, 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 but proud yeah. of themselves. Yeah, actually, absolutely. I think, um, um, and uh, it, um, it's really having an effect, isn't it? Yeah. And, and, and these women are actually then going on to, to use that as a platform. Yeah, absolutely. Often. Yeah. So, so a couple of um, stories from tech mums. So one, my one of my favourite mums is Amina, who runs a school uniform shop in Watney Market in the East End. She came along, did the tech mums course. Um, well, sorry, she did the first week, which was like the basic IT skills, the office IT skills. Um, and then the second week is uh, app design, so the second module. So I was going around chatting to everybody in the class um, about how they're getting on. And I said, so, you know, how are you getting on with Tech Mums? And he said, Tech Mums has changed my life. And I said, how can that have happened so quickly? I mean, that's great. But week, yeah. you've only been like for two hours last mm-hmm. week. 
um, you know, what do you mean? And she said, oh, well, I run a school uniform business and to get my samples of uniform over to customers, my son comes around and takes them over to the customer site. She said, but last week you taught me how to add attachments to emails and I realised I could take photos of the garments <laughs> and email them across to my customers. Actually, and I'm so, being mean and I'm laughing, but yeah. why would you know that if you're not... Yeah, well, no, exactly. exactly. Why wouldn't they say that you could do it? Yeah. Exactly. yeah, yeah, she's a smart woman, mm. you know. So she she just didn't know. And um, and I went round there last summer and she said she's got ten, 10 times the amount of customers now uh, that she had then. And you can just see from going into her shop, it's a massively thriving business. And she, when she actually came to the focus group before the first ever Tech Mums and she said that she was scared of the keyboard. That's one of the things that she said. Yeah. So she went from kind of being scared of the keyboard to feeling confident with technology, with computing, that she can, not that she knows all the answers, but she can find the answers. And that's kind of part of what the whole Tech Mums thing is, is like building confidence and letting everyone you're know that... You're not going to no break one, it. No, you're not going to break it. And uh, no one knows all the answers. No, just Google it. Yeah. yeah. No, but, that, but that's actually true, right? Yeah, all true. those answers are out there now. Yeah. Someone's always, almost Somebody's always... Somebody's done it before you, yeah. you know, and, and, and found that difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So um, in terms of Tech Mums now then, yeah. uh, uh, there's a hashtag... Yeah. Hashtag tech mums. Yeah. So um, if you if you search for that on Twitter, yeah. there's loads of really interesting stuff and you can follow some of those well, so threads, in, so some of those photos. So we're now running Tech Mums TV. We've just done Tech Mums TV for the last five weeks from Facebook HQ in London. Um, and we've had 40,000 views on our five wow. shows so wow. far. So um, we're looking for sponsors for season two. Stop looking at me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Joe. So if anyone's interested. <laughs> yeah, and, and, um, and, and again, the, the reason for that is just to reach more people. Yeah, 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 to reach more mums. Because we've been running in the classrooms and you can only reach a certain amount yeah. of women doing that. Um, a good way to scale up, really. Yeah. Otherwise, it's, yeah, the touch points are so... It's just not reaching enough yeah, people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so you can actually tune into that and you can literally almost take the course along with other people. Is, is, that, is that what you're trying to yeah, do? Yeah, so, so if you search Tech Mums TV on Facebook or Tech Mums, you'll yeah. find uh, the Tech Mums TV group. And then we've got the five uh, one-hour shows which have got some tech skills in there as well as like mums chatting about their lives and technology yeah. and life the universe and everything a bit um and yeah the aim is to in september come back with season two um and what we're hoping to do is is to run that in collaboration with libraries around the country yeah. Yeah. community centers housing associations so again if anyone's interested in working with us on that then mm. please get in touch yeah, and also if you go on to the Tech Talk Show website, uh, we'll put all the details on there and uh, we'll do a little profile of Sue so you can see all that and, oh, and do all these you. links to all the different things. So um, incredible work. We're going to have a little bit of a break and then we're going to talk to Philip, who's been very quiet. <laughs> it's your, Until it's your, now. It's your turn to shine, Philip. Okay. Okay. We're just going have a little break and we'll be back in a couple of minutes. You've joined us at a very good time. Oh, yeah. Yes. Our savvy software development guys have just qualified for a chunky government cash payout thanks to our new friends from Breakthrough Funding. Yeah, sorry, that just slipped out. Government handout? No, not a handout, but recognition for our clever thinking. Now it'll be down to you to help us kick it further forward. Leave it to me. Your company could qualify for Innovation Cash too. Find out online now by answering just six qualifying questions at BreakthroughFunding.com. Yeah! <laughs> So you've been listening to um, Dr. Sue Black. Very, very inspiring. Um, she's just told me off because I forgot to mention your book, <laughs> which is about, it's fascinating. It's about Black Tree Bar. And you've got really good reviews for your book, didn't you? Yeah, I've got Best something like 60, 
65 star reviews on Amazon. It's called Saving Bletchley Park and it's <laughs> it really is. good. Uh, and they're not one or two star ratings, are they? No. They're all no, five, five star. star. Mm. Apart from one guy who gave it four stars who said there's too much about social media in there. But it's like... How's my story? But the tagline <laughs> is, how social media saved the home of computers. Like, how could I not put social media Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. We don't like him <laughs> anymore. Um, so, Philip Shepherd. Hello. Now, uh, if you want to find out more about Philip, we'll put it on the website again, but it's philipshepherd.com. I don't, I don't have a suenelson.com. I'm thinking I might do that. No, I won't. Um, and uh, you, you really are uh, an incredible in the way that, the, you know, the, the, some of the stuff that you're doing. Um, and I know you're working on a new piece of music technology. Hmm. Can you give us a high level view of what that is and, yeah. what, and why, really? Yeah. Why I, you thought it was needed? Well, I meet so many people who say, oh, I wish I was musical, but, yeah. That's me. But. Yeah. That's me. Yeah. Now, I bet you don't say, oh, I wish I was a photographer. And yet we all happily take and share photos on our devices. Yeah, but you know when you used to learn how to play the recorder at school? It's the devil's they throw, instrument. They used to throw me out. It's the devil's And then instrument. they used to make me play the triangle because that's the only thing I could do. Which is a lot harder than it looks. And then when they said, we'll read the music and bang the triangle, I couldn't read music. They so used to have to point at me. And that is, the, that is the sum total of my musical ability. People are still pointing at me and I still don't know what to do. That's fine. But so my, I am your person. Yeah, great. You're describing. I, can, I, can, I, can, I can't do it right now, but I can prove to you that you are right. musical. And it's simply a case of, of tools. And, you know, this being a technology podcast, um, it, it's a great place to talk about it because actually the tools have been in existence for hundreds of years and the interfaces are amazing. And people talk about digital technology, but what does digital mean? It, it means using your hands. So we've had musical digital technology for thousands of years. And actually, these are peak technologies. So for instance, you know, I play the cello. I can't play any other instruments. I can't actually play the recorder. I'm, I'm, I was that kid who, who <laughs> thought, this is not for me. Yeah. This is the devil's instrument. Forget it. But I can play the cello because I learned how to kind of control that interface. Now, the cello that I learned on was made in 1692. Wow. Um, and it's, it's fine. Uh, I've, I, in the, I've probably killed nine laptops in the last two years, and those are not peak technologies, but a cello or a piano or a pencil is. And I'm very interested in actually the way so that... So by peak technology, mm. do you mean it's, it's got... It's, it's so far evolved that you can hardly evolve it anymore because it's at its peak. It's, it's, yeah. it's at its most it, brilliant, almost. Yeah, it's, it's almost reached a level where it's, the technicalities of it become invisible once you master it, mm. to some extent. Mm. It's the same with a pencil. I mean, a pencil will always be there. We can have a mechanical pencil. You can then develop parallel strands. So, for instance, the acoustic guitar is a beautiful example. The electric guitar is also a beautiful example. But one is not a progression of the other. It's a parallel track. Yeah, and that, yeah. that fascinates me because I, I honestly believe that once you take uh, an old technology, one that's been around a long time, that is that has that resilience to it, and you smash it into a new technology that maybe is a little bit pearly, doesn't quite work properly, that's actually where the sort of wondrous stuff happens so coming back to your question uh, be I, I, because yeah. you end up getting something new yeah it, it, absolutely and you, yeah. and you go you know talking about your unique selling points you 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 find the niches in those little cracks you find the oddities and you also find sounds that are amazing you also find sort of abilities and capacities that you wouldn't necessarily have, have thought and that that sort of hybridization really fascinates me I've, I've always had a sort of tech edge to to my my sort of thinking but it's funny because i've always played instruments that are older than the united states of america but there is actually kind of a place <laughs> where 
there's a there's a point at which you can say, okay, if we have these things that work beautifully, and you know, when I go into Abbey Road to record, I'm using microphones that the Beatles used. I mean, because How they're amazing. not going to get any. Yeah, it's great. How amazing. Yeah, that? but they're just they're, they're tools. They're just tools. You know, if you're playing a Stradivarius cello, it, do you know what? It's just a tool, and it's going to be around in a hundred years' time. And you know, I'm not, and I'm very aware of that fact. However, my laptop will be dead probably next month, yeah. and that's fine. It's transitory. You know, we don't have Moore's law for for instruments. So what I've become obsessed recently with, with addressing, in a way, people like you who say, well, I'm not musical, and saying, if I put the right tools in your hand and enabled you to, as you walk around, as you, you know, I don't know, go for a run or on your bike or whatever, or drive, it's actually creating something that will give you goosebumps in real time according to how you're moving in time and space. And I think I've done it. But we're early days. Right, so can I rewind on that and I'm trying to get that into sort of hmm. uh, uh, practical um, terms. So I'm, I'm, I'm quite a fan of Prodigy. And the reason why I'm Me a fan too. of... Yeah, I love Prodigy. <laughs> so the reason why I am is like before I go to a meeting, if I've got to walk for five minutes, mm-hmm. it pumps me up a bit, you mm-hmm. know. Whereas, you know, an, another occasion I might listen to something a bit more um, relaxing. But, you know, I'm, I mm. like Prodigy. Now, if I interface with that in the way I walk, can I adjust the way that sounds in that it will react to my body in, in you know or what i'm doing yeah totally. and, and alter the sound yeah so not not to give too much detail because we're we're at a, a yeah, sorry, high level. stage yeah i know but for instance um someone like that you can approach I, i'm not we're not looking at taking existing songs and oh, making okay. them react to you we're actually right. talking if you took what you would perceive as a song now and broke it into its constituent parts its blocks and i i i can look at a song and say okay if you treat that as lego or Legos, as our American friends say, you can break that down into sort of harmony, melody, beats, and you can fracture it. So you could take a track like Firestarter and you could break it down into... Drums in the Firestarter are brilliant. They're wonderful. Eh? Take that. Yeah, and there's very little. You, you'd like to take that. Is that what you're I'll saying? Say, <laughs> no, no, I don't. I've worked with those bands. I really don't like... They're no. all very lovely people. I really, really don't like to take well, that. I will put but, you right on that. No, that's fine. That's great. I'm not saying they're not nice. I just don't like their music. But no, but, but if you take the drum bit of Firestarter, yeah. for example... Would you like to sing it for us? No, no. Okay. <laughs> um, it's visceral. The drums in that are visceral and they are... The great thing about them is that they're direct and within one beat, it's probably giving you goosebumps. Mm. And what I'm looking for is to give anybody the goosebumps that I know music can give me. I'm lucky enough to, I've worked with Keith Flint and he's amazing. And you can be in a studio with that guy and the energy pouring off him and the smell of soap, he's very clean, um, is, <laughs> is extraordinary. Mm. But, but I'm lucky because I get to push, I get to push the harmonies and the melodies around, which... I know it gives me that kind of rush because mm. music isn't about anything. It's just abstract. We attach meanings to it. So you probably attach the drum hits in that to the point when you first hear them or something emotional that's happened to you at the point you've heard it. Now, if I was to say to you, we could break those elements down and as you move in time and space, it's actually giving you a soundtrack to your life that you know tangibly the way that you're interacting with your environment is causing that to happen and it could pull in elements of your favourite artists, then I, I think that could be interesting. And that's, that's what I'm working on at the moment. And we've got really far with it. And it's, I've got a great... I have a great team, and uh, 70% of my company is women. And without thinking about it, it just happens to be, because, do you know what? They're kind of better at this <laughs> stuff. Um, I'm not <laughs> commenting at all. Lucy, <laughs> could you see yourself using this in any way? Yeah, definitely. We were talking on the phone, weren't we? Yeah. And it's always... I've got all these music apps on my phone... 
but I never know which one. I mean, I yeah. gave birth to Prodigy, actually. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> you don't know. You don't know enough. Which one? No, thank you. Which one did you? Keith. Uh, one um, <laughs> from Out of Space, the bouncy one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I bounced oh. the birthing balls to that. And oh, did you? It, yeah, it's great labour. <laughs> oh, to see how that affects like your child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that could be interesting. Um, but yeah, it's, and I never, ever know. I mean, I like from country and western to drum and bass to literally yeah, yeah. such a wreck. people do have an eclectic mix yeah. yeah but what do you listen to and when it's like when I ask Alexa to play some music I think oh what should I ask her to play and, and, and the real the real problem is that with music you know we had a disruption in music way before we had disruption in anything else I mean going back to Edison who realised that actually the secret to music is copywriting it in 1908 I mean thank you very much I mean it's great for people like me yeah, sure. but at the same time there's been this thing that when the record industry's kind of got greedy particularly once the CD came along the, the, the schism occurred between the people actually listening to the music and the people making it and actually the real problem with music is that we've been trained to be consumers and the secret is actually mm. to be a producer. Mm. And that's where happiness lies. So what you're saying is music is something that happens to us rather than, yeah. than, than and, and we're the we first, feel we can create. Yeah, it. and we're the first sets of generations to actually just consume it rather than mm. do it. If you think about it, before the recording industry came along, you would play music socially. Whether you were singing, whether you could carry a tune in a bucket, it didn't matter. It wasn't something that you listened to and binged it was actually something you did it's ephemeral and it went i mean if actually, mozart considered yeah. the recording studio, he probably would be horrified at the fact that his music existed you know a year after he'd written it in recorded form mm. yeah. actually you're right because when i uh, look back so my, i i come from sort of inner city london and and you know mm. sort of a large um, family with no money but but um you know, Auntie Ruby, who mm. wasn't obviously my auntie, but everybody was called Auntie somebody, <laughs> uh, lived upstairs and she had a piano and used yeah. to go around there and, and she had no teeth, you know, and would, would play this piano, which sticks in my mind. And my grandmother had, probably, <laughs> <laughs> and my, my grandmother had an accordion. And, yeah. and, and, and like, I've never been brought up with no. instruments in the house because, but that, I guess that was part of their entertainment. Actually. Yeah, and also... Because, because we, you haven't got television. No, and, and also it's music is social glue. I mean, I, mm. I'm lucky because I travel all over the world and I don't speak many languages. I speak English-ish, a bit of American and some French. Mm. But I've been... I've worked in Beijing for the whole of the Olympics period and my Mandarin and my Cantonese doesn't exist beyond kind of Nihal. That's it. But I can go into a music shop, as I did, in the back streets of Beijing and jam with musicians all afternoon. Mm. And... I, I know that that's, that's something I try and give my kids. It's Common language. That, yeah, and it's actually, we've got this terror, particularly in the UK, of not being very good at things. When actually we are, as Mozart said, the nation of amateurs, and that's a really good thing. And we should, we should embrace that. And that's your tech mums, isn't it, really, Sue? Yeah, that's what yeah we're saying. absolutely. No, it's really, yeah. really interesting. And also maths is kind of, um, yeah. you know, maths is like music in that way as well, in that, you can go anywhere in the world. And if you understand maths, then you can sort of have a conversation, even, even if you don't speak the same language. Exactly. And the only difference in, in what we're doing is that the software that I'm working with is 300 years old and doesn't really need up, updating. I mean, if you think about it, the written, the way that, that music has been encoded, there's only 12 notes. And the, the kind of trellis system we have of a musical stave or staff, whatever you want to call it, honestly hasn't changed since the 17th century because it's fine. I mean, it works. Yeah. yeah. So, actually, if you treat music as code, there's so much you can do with it. And I just feel that no one's quite jumped on that yet. Yeah. And, and I, I want to. 
Well, I'm very interested in your new technology. But before we go over to our next guest, tell us about your composing. I mean, you've composed more than 60 film, mm-hmm. television and theatrical scores, haven't you? Mm. Sitting there modestly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's your favourite out of the ones that you've composed uh, my that you're fav- most proud of? I think, I think there are two. I think the, fir- the, the first movie I ever did was called In the Shadow of the Moon. And we, none of us who made the film, there's just five of us who kind of made it and produced it. None of us have made a movie before. And the people who, I won't say who they are because you'll know them. Who, who, who? We always name everybody on this show. We're not worried about any of that. Well, Channel Four, who commissioned it, yeah. said there's a good movie in here that's not this. So we took it to Sundance. We won. They said we knew it was great. <laughs> um, and oh luckily, because I've always worked in documentary, I get to work alongside the people featured. So you know, I've, I've literally brought astronauts home with me, which is kind of lovely. Which means I get to to breathe the same air as people who kind of live on the edge of life. I don't. I live in a studio and get paler and paler. But I'm hanging out permanently with people who are either in situations of great duress or, or are kind of very high achieving. and or pushing, really pushing yeah. physically. Yeah. And, and the majority of them, weirdly enough, if I was looking back at the films I've done, the majority of them are actually women uh, who, who are doing extraordinary things. And in fact, I've got a, this is a terrible plug, but I've got a film premiering um, soon uh, called mercury 13 which by the time this podcast comes out should be should be on netflix which is actually about the female space race which was quashed primarily by the the sort of male-led astronauts um and there was a female space race program running exactly the same time as the apollo program and those women are still alive and they're all kind of barnstorming jet amazing. pilots and yeah. they're wonderful and i get to hang out with these people and i get to bring them, bring them home for tea I'm, I'm the luckiest man in the world so i really i do i do movies because i have a short attention span and i get to meet people who do things that i'll never ever achieve you know. there you go wow um just going over now to um to joe joe davis of um, vim group joe the the branding of of these sorts of projects so so i think uh, I'm, and you can't see so or you will because we'll, we'll we'll put it on the website but you've actually got a personal brand which is quite strong so you've got a very striking <laughs> pink, pink red hair yeah. you know, your glasses and all that sort of yeah. stuff you take a lot of selfies where, where you know you're yeah. normally in the bottom left hand corner or whatever yeah. um that there is a bit of a brand going on there and i do think asking joe that that part of sue's success in getting that across is is people being familiar with that look and that feel and and understanding what that stands for absolutely brand is an expression of who you are so for companies and organizations it's their expression of their business strategy and and what they're propelling into the world their values they're offering their services for sue it's very much her um, she is her brand, and it's important that she gets across all of those things that fit with Sue and what she's offering and, and doing and the fantastic things that she's done. So, so yeah, brand is very much an expression of who you are. And the point of technology is Sue used it, actually, the Bletchley piece. Mm. She, you know, she talked about emailing people and, and such, but, yes, that's a piece of tech, but tech isn't functional thing per se or an individual thing it's an all-encompassing thing and it's very much about where things are going today so she used community branding i would say then she was you know instigating a a feel and an understanding of bletchley Mm. so she was getting across the the purpose that it stood for and saying hang on a second this is incredibly valuable to to us the country in the war effort how can i portray that across to people Mm. and she used you know the brand effort by explaining to people what Bletchley was, and and um, brand isn't just visual, is it? 
it's not a no. logo. <laughs> yeah, there's that confusion all the time, I think, with branding. But for me, it's like how you answer the phone, if you're a business. That's just yeah. as much part of your brand, mm. you know, as how you look. Yeah. But also what you're saying with the work that Sue's done, um, it, it's also trying to stand for all those things. It and is. Also, all of that brand, all of that is about yeah. brand. Yeah, I think people get very confused that brand is a yeah physical thing or a colour palette or a logo or a name, and it's not. It's um, how you behave, your your thinking, your communication, your verbal, your your written communication, all and everything you do. So if we think of organisations rather than people, it's their internal culture and how everyone behaves, as well as the products and services and maybe the logo type and how things mm. physically look. But also, I think today technology is, gosh, disrupting hugely um, with the business strategy piece. And people are not necessarily understanding that they have to change their, not their business model and who they are, but to keep up with the shift mm. and the disruption. And I think what was, was being spoken about earlier by Philip around the music, I mean, it's incredible what he's, what he's doing mm. here. I have an ultimate passion personally for music. Um, I'm not a musician. I did learn the devil's instrument, though. Um, <laughs> and that was the only thing. Um, and I think there's a disruption coming um, with what, what Philip's talking about into that industry. And people are seeing it around uh, taxis. You know, who doesn't use Uber or, or, mm. or other great taxi hailing services that are available? Who doesn't consider um, booking things online or the Airbnb situation that's disrupted the hotel market? And I think it's really interesting how um, the connection of the consumer, you talked about people uh, consuming music. And actually, y yes, we do consume things. We consume brands and we connect with them and we buy their stuff or stay in their hotel or those kind of things. But we also want to feel part of it. And we also want to be able to add our own creativity to build it. And I think with the music piece that, that Philip's talking about... It's going to be really it, interesting, isn't it? It's yeah. just, just mm. fascinating um, to think what it'll do to the... Mm. The, the music set up but, today. But Joe, we all get really cross when, when you project a brand and you, you can probably work with a firm like yours and you'll say all those things and they'll go, yeah, we'll get that right, we'll do this, we'll do that. Then, then they'll project this image or this brand and these promises, essentially, of mm. what you're doing with brand. You're promising that this is how you act. But actually, the reality of dealing with that company isn't like that at all. And I think, I think the thing if I may use Sue again as an example, is that, you know, Sue's a passionate social entrepreneur and that permeates everything she does. And you can see it does. Mm. And it's in your comms and it's the way you speak and, you know, everything. Mm. Um, and it's authentic all the yeah. way through. It, it's, uh, com it's completely yeah. like a piece of rock. It's authentic. Yeah. You might be Virgin, for example, and Virgin Trains. And you have these lovely ads and they have these ads where you sail mm. from, you know, from, from Manchester down to Euston <laughs> in a beautiful train that's clean with the coffee machine working and sandwiches that look like they've been made by a chef and, you know, all that sort of stuff. The reality of it is it's not like that. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I was on the Liverpool one uh, uh, recently and they didn't have anything that they said they were going to have to eat. And this guy said, um, is there any crisps, please? And, and this, because it's a Liverpool one, they've got a great sense of humour. <laughs> it's not and She said, no, love, sorry, it's Weight Watchers Week. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, now, that was funny, but that's not really uh, the not brand. The point. No, no, it's yeah. not really the brand. And, yeah. and there can be a disconnect. And that's when, that's when you lose your loyalty, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think um, 
yeah the tech part that exists gosh we can all complain can't we we can all flag it quite well immediately Mm. um we can share our unhappiness um about that brand and that experience incredibly fast so part of that the the brand one use the word authentic it it is a key word in values it's also starting a little bit to get overused so it's also a little bit about provenance and about being grounded and about clarity and we can talk about values of we offer super service and, and we always aim you to do our damn, best. You better damn make sure you yeah. you do that. Quite. Really. But yeah. we all expect that anyway. So mm. what's your what's your point of difference? So truth is also truth and trust. Um, and obviously brands can erase that trust by bad experiences. And then it's a little bit about reputation and how do you handle that crisis? How do you handle that disappointment? And what's your internal governance structure to understand the effect that you, that Sue not getting her crisps is going to have on that brand if she tweets everybody Listen, and if I don't have my crisps I get very touchy <laughs> very annoyed <laughs> um, straight on trip you advisor them. you know it th- there's there's current topics going on around trust and brands i mean i I hear quite a lot uh being talked about trust deficit so Mm. so um particularly with banks or with other things then there is a trust deficit you've got to work really hard if you've got that in your business haven't you because you've got to regain it yeah absolutely it it it, and you can use brand uh, to do that again Mm. because you've got mythology and communication and you can re reassess and reinstigate who you are but it it's um it's interesting how today we can erase brand values quite quickly as consumers en masse. Um, We can also spin things, you know, without Mm. going crazy talking about fake news. But there's also that that part to deal with. So businesses have to cut through that and their brand is their biggest intangible asset. Mm. And I think companies, many companies still see brand as, well, it's my logo. Mm. Um, It's my color palette. It's my Marketing, which is a function. It doesn't exist in the boardroom and brands should be in the mm. boardroom brand is as i said expression of your your um, business strategy and who you are and your point of difference and when you have those crises how are you going to deal with yeah, it i mean brand has a huge uh, value i mean i don't know if you've got any thoughts philip on um, the, the current state of facebook mm-hmm. finding themselves in i mean you know they're losing you know value because everybody's realizing that actually they're using our data thanks very much but i think i think responsibility is on the consumer there because if someone's giving you something for nothing within the tech world it's because they their side of the equation is that you're giving them an awful lot and it's funny because <laughs> with what you're talking about with in terms of, of of brands it's quite an interesting experiment that particularly in the uk we we tend to use social media to complain rather than to compliment mm. That's and i have the, british we love yeah that. but <laughs> but there's also a behavioral change that i think consumers can can try which is I, I i try and if something's been good i'll personally try and compliment online i did it on a ba flight recently because i just thought the career was just so nice and within within five minutes of landing it had gone they dead viral tweeted it because but it was a genuine thing that and they were so surprised to have a compliment you, well no but it. it's true yeah. because you know actually the majority of our experiences are probably pretty good it's just mm. we're we're used to they complaining because we've, yeah. we're socially entitled the mm. facebook thing i think we've become so socially entitled to the fact that it's free and hey isn't this great but actually 
we've we've signed that contract across the board with mm-hmm. any any one of the social media, let alone cookies. That That's we why I've never been on it uh, because <laughs> because of the way they use it. Yeah. Well, I'm fine with Twitter actually. Uh, I shouldn't be probably, no. um, but I don't give in my data. So um, I can't believe we've come to the end of the program, right, Lucy. Can we do another hour? Can <laughs> <laughs> do another hour? Um, so I just I just like to say thank you so much to our guests today. Um, thank you, Sue. Love just keep. Keep doing it. You're like a national treasure. Oh, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> Buy her book. Oh yeah. Buy her book. <laughs> Philip says he's very, he's very keen. He's, he's very keen on the on the book. Um, uh, if you want to find out about Sue, uh, well, just basically, if you just Google Dr. Sue Black, you'll have about forty thousand entries there. You can find all that about her. Um, and don't forget about uh, Tech Mums. Um, and and again, just Google that. That's great. Um, and we'll give loads of details on the website. Mm-hmm. There'll be um, links and stuff. Like that. Li- loads of links. Yeah. And thank you so much to Philip. Um, I'm gonna try. I might try a little bit of composing or something. <laughs> yeah. after what you said today. Yeah, I might just pick up a violin and see what I can do. No, probably not. Um, <laughs> and um, again, you can find out all about Philip Shepherd at philipshepherd.com, and that's one L and one P and Shepherd no. without an H, yeah. was it? That's something I don't know. I don't something know. like that. Philip Shepherd. <laughs> if you just if you just Google Philip Shepherd projects, well, that will get Some, you there. I something like that. But again, we'll have loads of links from our from our <laughs> website and. Um, We'd really be interested. We must have you back on the programme when you're allowed to talk about yeah. what you've done. Okay, and you've great. signed all that, you've and signed it all. You. And you'll, you'll be a billionaire by and you'll then. you'll give up the recorder. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll give up the recorder and you can come on there. And, um, and Joe, thank you so much for, for talking to us about brand, actually what brand is properly. Um, and if you go on to um, vim-group, uh, you, you'll find out lots of information on there. And, yeah. and, and if you are really seriously considering building a company, you have got to get that right. Yeah, so don't scrimp absolutely. and save on it. Yeah, get yeah. in there. Really important, and mm. uh, there's also a, a book, hey, available as well that we've written uh, called Future Proof Your Brand, which is around the topic of disruption yeah. in brand and, and tech. something you should be yeah. looking at Absolutely. right from the beginning of starting yeah. your company. Yeah. So you've been listening to the Tech Talk Show, and we're now syndicated to dozens of radio stations. Can't even say it, across the UK and further afield. You can also catch us on the podcast app on your phone through iTunes and Podbean and of course on our website which is techtalkshowuk.something what is it harry.co.uk got it Um, and if you want to recommend any future guests someone doing something groundbreaking in the tech sector please get in touch with us via Twitter on at techtalkshowuk didn't you enjoy that Lucy? I did yeah it was good I learnt loads as usual so um, thank you for joining us and uh, have a good week bye